Welcome to Collaboration RA. This podcast is dedicated to our profession, allowing us to share who we are, what we bring to the field of radiology, and how we care for the patients we serve. We look forward to hearing from you. Find us on our website at www.collaborationra.com. We appreciate you listening, and we're glad you're here. Now let's collaborate. Welcome to this episode of Collaboration RA. I'm Reese, and I am joined with Marceline again. Let's say hello, Marceline. Hey, guys. Okay, so first and foremost, I want to thank you for joining back with us again this week. We have a very special guest with us this time around. We have Deborah Thames. She is a registered radiologic technologist since 1995, and she's been specializing in mammography since 96. She is a lead technologist at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas, and has been doing that for 25 years. She has a total of 27 years experience as a mammographer. She started teaching mammography, continuing education courses, and performs mammography consulting now for 18 years. She is currently a medical educator at the UT School of Health Professions at MD Anderson Cancer Center bachelor's program teaching the 40-hour initial mammography training curriculum and preparation for the ARRT registry. She completed her Master's of Science in Radiologic Sciences degree at UT School of Health Professions in August of 2021. And now she travels around the United States to help guide the accreditation process in the MQSA yearly inspections or the MTMI. She is compassionate about breast health and shares her experience and knowledge to help fight the battle with breast cancer. Deborah, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So glad to be here. In the intro, we hit some more alphabet soup along the way. We keep adding more uh, letters to that, it seems, with every episode. So I'm excited (laughs) to hear all about that, as I'm sure our listeners are as well. Let's go ahead and dig in. Okay. So kind of start telling us how you ended up in radiology and then deciding to go that mammography route. Well, I'm from South Dakota. My husband at that time traveled a lot because he taught National Guard. So we traveled many places every six months. So I went back home to be with my family just so my kids would be around family. And My neighbor at that time was RT, and she said, oh, we're moving. I wanted to come say goodbye. I said, oh, I'm sorry, you know, see you go. She goes, oh, that's okay. You know, it's nice being your neighbor. She goes, I already have a job. We're moving. I'm like, you already have a job? She goes, yeah, I'm an x-ray tech. I said, oh, that is so cool. That makes sense. You can get a job anywhere you live. A light bulb went off in my head. I'm like, oh, since my husband travels so much, Maybe this is something I can get into. So then we moved to Augusta, Georgia, because he worked at Fort Gordon there. So he got a permanent job there. I applied for a radiology school in Augusta, Georgia. And I didn't know at the time you needed some free classes or they interview you. They're like, you should have some college classes. I had already had maybe one or two. So I went to school and started medical classes, finished some generals, and then I reapplied. And the next year I got in and accepted in Augusta. And then how long did you practice doing x-ray before you knew that you wanted to go to MAMO? Like, did you complete the program and then decide or you kind of knew within the program? 
No, we didn't get to Mammal very much. You know, back in the early 90s, we got to see a couple of patients in Mammal, but that was it. They concentrated more on CT, MRI, and diagnostic radiology. When I got my first job, I had to do everything. I had to do diagnostic. They had me training in CT. They even had a little bit training in MRI and then in mammography. And I really liked mammography because uh, my mother had died from breast cancer like 30 years ago. So mm. it intrigued me. And of course, MQSA wasn't around then. There was no laws or regulations. So I didn't have to get any training. You just went in, did a couple, and you were doing mammography. So that's how I got into it. Also, they had a mobile program in Augusta, Jordan, and it was a pitiful band. We broke down all the time. I remember one time we had gone like 30 miles away. We had to go like 10 miles an hour on the side of the road coming back. It was the worst. I felt like Fred Flintstone having to get my feet out and pedal back to get to Augusta. But it was interesting because... I was mentored by some of the technologists there, and I really loved it. And then we moved to Houston. My husband, they had called him to start the first digital cell phone. And so it moved us to Houston. And it was a really bad time because when I got to Houston as, you know, the fourth largest city in the United States, there were no radiology jobs, hardly at all. And so I finally found one, which was down at the Texas Medical Center, which happens to be the largest medical center in the world. I got a mammography job there and I just stuck with it. I know whenever I went through x-ray school, they offered mammography. So I was kind of introduced to it in the program and they actually would let you do your classes in the morning. And then you could go in the afternoons and shadow and get your procedures in. And I did the coursework, but I never followed through with the rest of it. You know, I wonder if they still offer that. I mean, you're talking 23 years ago. And I know, Reese, I've asked you before. I know, obviously, you didn't get to do any of the mammography stuff, but they offer it to the female students in your class? It was an elective. Like, basically, once you've kind of wrapped up all the things, you have the majority of your comps done. They did offer that to students. You know, I had always done well in OR, so I selected OR as, a, as an option. I selected uh, another round in CT and ER, I think. But I asked, I was like, well, what about MAMS? Like, that's something I haven't seen. And I was actually kind of dissuaded from the teaching staff. They're like, oh, really? That's more of a female focus. I was like, okay, well, then I will go see myself elsewhere. So, Deborah, is that still the case? I know you've been through it for a number of years now. Is it primarily still female-led? Have you come across any male mammographers? It is very female-led. It's not a law, but it is not kosher per se that a facility would have a male mammographer. Now, I have seen down in the valley close to like Brownsville and Harlingen where they had males do breast biopsies because they were so short of technologists. But as far as mammography goes, I have never met a male mammographer. It just makes the patients feel more comfortable, I believe, having the same gender in the room with them, guiding them through the exam. I'm a little bit opposite. I choose male gynecologists. I choose a lot of males for a lot of my female type stuff. I don't think I would have an issue. You know, we're all professionals. We're all there to try to serve the better purpose. I'm perfectly fine with male or female 
you might feel comfortable, but I know we <laughs> have some male radiologists and the females do not want them doing their biopsies mm. or even coming in the room to give them some consultation. They do not feel comfortable. And we have a lot of international patients at our facility mm -hmm. where they absolutely will not allow a male in the room to see the female undressed. Yeah. We have three or four male radiologists where once a month they kind of rotate. But at our main facility, we have two males and we accommodate the international patients and respect their beliefs. We stop the line and get a female radiologist in there to accommodate the patient. I know our schedulers are really good about asking beforehand when they're trying to book these patients for their exams is if you have a religious or cultural or personal belief of having a male or female provider, they will ask that and they will verify that there's male or female or staff on the day of their exam. And that's why I think Marceline and I make a really good team is because we're one of each. We just want to make sure that we can better accommodate these patients. Yes, that's very nice. We have an international office where we accommodate patients with interpreters. And I think we have different languages for our patients. Like you say, they give this questionnaire and then we accommodate that. It depends on what doctor is on that day because they rotate, but we're very respectful and want the patient to be happy with their medical care and their experience. And so we do accommodate that and change to a female radiologist. Yeah. The second thing I want to address or the second hardest thing about that is allowing students in the room for these invasive yes. exams. A lot of people aren't even comfortable having others in the room, let alone students, you know, for some of the HSG procedures that we do and provide for our patient demographic. Very blessed to have a number of patients say, yeah, the more the merrier, let's, let's do this. You got to learn sometime, you got to learn somehow, because it's not just a one and done thing. There's a different forms of anatomy, different variations, different techniques. And you can only gain that through repetition. So I wasn't really, you know, offended or hurt that I was not included on the mammography side of things. I still know nothing about it. I'm really happy to visit okay. with you so you can kind of give us all the details about what goes on back there. But yes. you did say your son brushed you up on it today. Oh, yes. <laughs> so this is actually came in the mail today. It's the new ASRT directed reading, the summer 2023 edition. And my son, who is five years old, he enjoys going out to check the mail. He went out and checked the mail, brought in all the mail, and he was flipping through it, looking at all these cool pictures of bones. Well, he actually stumbled upon the directed reading article for this edition titled Breast Cancer Screening, written by Brandon Hirsch and Tracy White. So shout out to them. But he flipped right to the page where they have uh, the different quadrants for breast exams, as well as the lymphatic system for the breasts, the anatomy of the ducts and everything like that. And he announced to my wife, who is not in medical field, here, mom, you can read a book about nipples. <laughs> that was uh, quite an eye opener for her. We had to do a little bit of uh, on the spot education real quick. I thought it was very relevant that that just happened when we got home today. And here we are going to be talking about mammography on the podcast. <laughs> Quite unique story there. He was just helping you. Oh, absolutely. And he's such a cute little guy. So I know as you're educating, one of the things that Reese brought up 
that I did think was really interesting and I didn't probably really think much about. How are people in terms of being receptive to students who are learning mammography? Do you guys come across things that, you know, maybe you have to troubleshoot through more regularly than others or are they all pretty open to it? First of all, it's an area that they're very concerned. They're very worried and they want someone who's skilled. And then the other part of it is it's a very private area. And like Reese mentioned, you know, the more people you have in the room, the more intimidating it most likely is. Right. Well, that's a great question because our institution is an education institution. It's called the University of Texas and the Anderson Cancer Center. So most patients realize it is a teaching institute. We have residents, we have fellows, and we do have students. Now, with mammography, they have to have 40 hours of training and 25 supervised exams to become a mammographer. So that supervisor is in the room the whole entire time, guiding the students through the exam, teaching them, correcting them. Most patients are okay with that. Then if they're going to take the registry, then they have to do additional clinical requirements. We sometimes are in the room if they need help, but most patients are okay with it. Like Reese had said, you got to learn sometimes. And that's what they say because they feel okay when you're in the room and they see that you're not going to let something be done incorrectly as far as exam goes. Once in a while, you will have a patient say, I do not want a student touching me. And we respect that. And so they just watch the exam. Sometimes they don't let me do it. They won't like you for some reason. And they'll say, is there another technologist here? I'm like, oh, yes, I will kindly go get somebody else. You know, it doesn't even have to be a student. Sometimes they just don't feel comfortable with certain people. I don't know what it is, but it's okay. You can't take it personally. You just move on. But yeah, they receive the students very well at our institution because it is education institution. Well, it's nice to know that they have that kind of set in their minds, like this might happen during my visit. That is helpful, I will say. And also we have international people that come all the time to take tours and want to watch and see how we do things. So we constantly have people watching. And so we ask, can this person be in the room just observing? 99% of the time, the patients are okay. The other thing that I had that I hear a lot of, and I know you and I talked prior to recording, and I texted a radiologist who I worked closely with, but I was actually taught in some of the women's imaging whenever I first started in the RA program. I really respected mammography at that point in my career. Whenever I went through the educational system in the very beginning as an x-ray tech, I don't think I really understood it. But once you step into this other one, you realize it's not all the same. There is a ton to mammography and to women's imaging that I think a lot of people lose sight of or maybe never know. And so one of the things that I hear people say all the time is that it's repetitive. While, yes, I think some of the motions and thought process behind it can appear that way. It's not as repetitive as you may think. How would you best describe the roles that mammographers play and kind of what, you know, life looks like as a mammographer? Well, mammography has many aspects of jobs that you can do. You could do screening mammography, where it's just for asymptomatic patients, don't have any problems. It's usually a yearly exam. 
We do diagnostic mammography for patients who have symptoms or problems. We also do serotactic breast biopsies. We also do contrast-enhanced mammography, which is kind of new. It hasn't spread real fast, but it's been approved by the FDA for a while. We also do molecular breast imaging, mobile mammography, where we go out into the community where the community can't come to us. We're available because of financial problems. They can't get to the facility. They don't have the means. They don't even have doctors. So we get grants to be able to provide our community with free mammography and breast health education. Also, you can cross-train in breast ultrasound as a mammographer without having any of the school. And then you would take the breast ultrasound exam. We also help with breast MRI biopsies. Oh, we also do breast localizations and prepare the patient for surgery. So there's so many different aspects of the job. I have never woken up one morning and say, I do not want to go to work. I absolutely love my job because each breast is so different with each patient. And not only that, each breast could be different on one patient. And so there's many challenges because we're doing soft tissue x-ray. Each breast is different shape, different size. Each patient has different challenges. So MQSA has laws that was written in 1992. And just because a patient's in a wheelchair, that law still says, my quality has to be as good as someone that is not in a wheelchair. Or maybe a patient has had a stroke or they have mental physical disabilities. Every patient, no matter what, deserves a high quality mammogram. Every challenge is different and you learn from it. I still have to sharpen my skills every day. I remember recently, earlier was saying that repetitiveness in learning can help, but with breast, that is true. You have to work on your skill levels every day because each patient is so different. We can have patients with scoliosis or patients who have other cancers who cannot be mobile or have different body habits with the same equipment. So you have to manipulate this patient into providing that high quality to find breast cancer at the earliest stage possible. That's our job is to save lives by doing high quality exams for the radiologist to find abnormalities in the exam. I never thought of just the different ways the machines would have to move to accommodate different patients. I mean, you know it, but we don't do it, Reese. So we don't. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I have nothing to offer <laughs> in this conversation. I don't know it. I've never seen it. I assume there's been technical, like what technology has improved from film to CR to DR. I'm sure that technology has improved for mammography as well. Marcin's over here going, yeah, yeah, this is what it, I was like. I have no idea. I have not been exposed <laughs> to this. I literally have not been exposed. So what are some of the technical advancements that you have seen in your career? It's unbelievable. And it's hard to impress me because I've done it for so long, but I've been impressed. I did start out kind of the end of zero mammography where it was done on paper and ink. And then film screen cassettes were approved in the later 70s, introduced pretty much into society in the 80s. 
I worked with that. It was a higher dose, though, because we used low KBP and higher mass, like 22, 23 KBP with like 200, 300 mass. Then digital was approved in the year 2000. And we got one machine, but it was a small detector, 18 by 24. There's two main sizes in mammography, 18 by 24 centimeters and 24 by 30 centimeters. There was only one small one available. Well, if you had a large breast, you had to do multiple images, like mosaic imaging and piece it all together. So we were excited, though. It was digital. It, it was amazing. We're like, oh, it will never get better than this. Never. Well, it did. Because with digital being approved, of course, like I said, in 2000, digital breast tomosynthesis was introduced and approved by the FDA in 2011. That is 3D mammography, where you take different amount of projection images that the tube will move over the patient's head. It depends on the manufacturer, it depends on how many images, it depends on the angle. And then the software will step in and separate those projection images into digital breast tomosynthesis images where you don't have superimposition of tissue hiding pathology. So it has improved with finding breast cancers, more breast cancers, even up to 40%. And then we're like, oh, it can never get better with this. And we are seeing also an increase in specificity and sensitivity with contrast-enhanced mammography, where we inject patients with iodine, just like in CT. And we have about six minutes to take a mammogram. It takes a low KVP and high KVP and subtracts it, the software will step in and it will make enhancements on the images to find abnormalities. I'm impressed with that too. I'm very impressed. We do that at our facility and I'm very impressed with that. You have to have improvement in technology with radiology to help the patient find diseases. We do a lot of clinical trials at our facility. Oh my goodness, the clinical trials that help gain information to help save patients' lives is endless. That's great. I mean, I love hearing that. As a teaching facility, you know, you guys do a lot of the forefront things. I know that our radiologists have been using AI in MRI of the breast. You know, I remember when I was through RA school, there were certain variations of that that we were seeing and using to kind of catch things. Are you guys using any AI? How does that look? I'm really curious about this AI stuff. AI is used in mammography. It is available for all manufacturers in mammography. They use it as part of CAD, computer-aided detection, of course. We do use it. And, and of course, it's just like any CAD. It's a second opinion, per se. It doesn't mean it's right. But it draws attention for the radiologist say, hey, look at this. This could possibly be something. And we do use it at our facility. I have to brag on our radiologists. They are so amazing. They're so respectful. They treat us like gold. And I know they appreciate the technology and the AI and the CAD. And I know they use it. But of course, they have the final say-so with the human opinion that our physicians will give to our patients in recommendations. But yes, it's wonderful that we do have AI as a guide, as an aid for a radiologist to help find admiralty in the exam. I'm sure they really enjoy having those guidelines and helpful tips to spot these pathologies. But from the mammographer side of things, 
What are some of the challenges that you or some of your staff have faced in regards to women's imaging? I know we already talked about male versus female providership. Are there any other, it could be a technical aspect, it could be a demographic aspect. Like what are, what are something that really kind of jumps out to you? The challenges we face are comfort and quality with compression. There's no long compression from MQSA, Mammography Quality Standard Act that was written in 1992. But the best thing that we can do for our patient is compression. Compression has seven benefits. And the patients don't like it, of course, because it can be uncomfortable. But in order to get high quality images, you must use very good compression. So there's that fine line of quality and comfort. To do your best, to get the best high quality image, you must guide that patient and let them understand how important compression is. We have signs up in our rooms stating in layman terms to the patient why we use compression, that it improves quality, it can improve contrast, it can separate breast tissue so we can see in between the structures of the anatomy of the breast. It's less radiation, it's less scatter radiation. So compression is a challenge in mammography. It's the number one challenge in mammography to be able to provide that high quality imaging and keep them comfortable as much through this exam. Also educating the patient on radiation, how it is very low dose, it's regulated. The regulations are three milligrade per view, it's not per exam, to educate them that the benefit outweighs the risk by far. And the dose is regulated, of course, but our equipment is regulated and the quality control that is performed on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, monthly, quarterly, and semi-annually to be able to take care of the equipment, to take care of the patients. The challenge is making sure they don't have fear of radiation, educating them in that short amount of time you have, educating them on how important compression is, how important it is that we're here for them to do the best that we can do to make sure they are healthy with their breast. I know when it comes to the treatment side of things, that's usually when I see breast cancer patients is they'll come in for a chemo port to IR and we'll put a port in them. Sometimes if the the disease is progressive and has spread to other parts of the body, we'll also get involved to do different biopsies to see if it's progressing. When is it that I should be getting a mammogram? Is it, is it, I've heard 40. Is it still 40 years old? Is that changing? Yes, there's different committees that give advice on annual screening mammography. There's seven most common committees that give advice on that. We go by annual screening. And that's important because say you get a mammogram today and then four, five, six months later, you get breast cancer. Well, if you wait two years or three years, it can get larger and spread. So that's why they call it early detection. We want to find it as early as possible. Mammography is the gold standard to find breast cancer at the earliest stage possible. There's no other diagnostic modality that finds breast cancer as well as mammography. So we do believe in annual screenings. The lifetime survivalship of each stage is different. Of course, as you get to advanced stage breast cancers, your life expectancy does drop and the treatments have improved. It's no longer 
cookie cutter. They look at every individual thing per patient, and then they will make up a management plan for that patient to make sure that their survival is good and the progression of it will stop. And with the immune therapies and endocrine therapies and molecular therapies to help for the survivalship of this patient with good, high quality of life. I know that recently they've made some changes to it, you know, whenever you can go in for that annual screening and things along those lines. So I'm hoping we'll be able to catch breast cancers even earlier, especially in patients who have a family history of breast cancer. So being able to catch that, to see that, to be able to address it much faster. Do you, by chance, know the statistics of men who get breast cancer? Because I think, you know, you hear about it so often in women that we forget to really push men that this is also something that they have to be cognizant of as well, too. Right. Gender is the number one factor for developing breast cancer over a lifetime, then age and then family history and hormones. We do men almost every day. Their death rates are higher and a woman's chance you're born in one in eight percent, which is twelve point five percent or thirteen percent in a lifetime. So men, yes, it's one in a thousand compared to women, one in eight. But we do treat men the exact same way. We do the mammography exam the exact same way. They do get it. Typically, most times they do mastectomies. I have seen a few do segmentals because the cancer is so small to try and preserve good cosmetic results. The cosmetic result for women after surgery is just important to men. Yeah, I think it's such a personal area of the body. I mean, very emotional and personal part of our bodies. It is tough. About 240,000 women a year are diagnosed with breast cancer. That's why Breast Cancer Awareness Month is so wonderful because it kind of reminds a person, oh, I need a mammogram. I need my annual mammogram. It reminds them, it puts that thought in their head. We are taking care of our bodies to stay as healthy as we can to have a good quality long life that we all want. Yep. And I think it all starts with the self-exam at home. That's easy to do. It's cheap. It's free. And, you know, there's so many things Reese has mentioned on our episodes before. There's so many YouTube videos out there and articles in terms of educating on our industry and learning that it can be as simple as kind of teaching yourself that and doing that self-exam is, you know, one of the simplest things you can do every single day, you know, in the shower or wherever you are changing for that day to get ready for work. Make sure that you're getting that self-exam and get to know your body so that when something changes, you know about it. There's major risk factors and there's minor risk factors. A woman having their period longer means that they have more circulating estrogen and progesterone. And then the longer you keep your period raises your risk because of the circulating hormones. Because hormones do play a factor in developing breast cancer. It doesn't cause it. That's why women who get pregnant lowers their risk so the longer you have a cycle, it does raise your risk, but it is minor risk. There are many minor risks that can raise your lifetime risk of developing breast cancer. There's different assessment tools for risk factors across the United States. And it depends on how you're assessed, this tool that will give you a percentage of your lifetime risk. So yes, 
having family history can raise your risk with first degree relatives and second degree relatives. But it doesn't, of course, mean that you're going to get breast cancer. You can have every risk there is and not develop breast cancer over a lifetime. That's why screening tools are so important. We talked earlier about mammography didn't have rules when you first started and we didn't have all these regulations. Now we do. So now you've been traveling. How did you first start that traveling gig? And then kind of tell us how you started into all of that and where it's led you into today. Well, my boss before had taught at an education company here in Houston and they needed teachers. She's like, you're going to teach us. I know I'm not. Well, she talked me into it. So I started helping her with the 40-hour initial training. And then she had some family issues and had to quit. And I took it over. Well, part of that company did consulting work when facilities failed accreditation process. Because you have to be accredited, certified, and inspected to perform mammography. Well, if they failed accreditation process, which happens once every three years, they needed someone to come in there and teach positioning, teach about their machine, um, see what the issues were. Well, then I had joined another company and I also do that when they fill the yearly inspection from MQXA employee that will go out and inspect your facility every year. That's mandated. And if they fill, I can go in and consult them and help them organize their paperwork, their policies and procedures. Also, I do a lot of consulting. We have to do eight hours of hands-on training with real patients when they have a deficiency or a failure. And we go in and just enlighten them with tricks we've learned. Um, maybe they weren't taught correctly. So we go in and use our experience and knowledge and help teach them. They're very open. And so I, I love doing that. And I get to see how other people do things and bring new ideas to my manager. <laughs> They're pretty open to improving any type of process at your facility. So I love consulting. I actually have three jobs. I work full-time at MD Anderson, then I do teach at the College of Health Professions running their mammography program. Then I also work for the education company, of course, NTMI, and help teach their initial training and do consulting and help with inspection. So yeah, I don't have a lot of time. My kids are grown and gone, and I do have four grandchildren. I try and spend time with them. I spare time of a few minutes here and there. But I love it. If it was any other way, I don't think I would know what to do. I'm very blessed because some people want one job. Well, I have three. Not only do I have jobs, I love what I do. I'm very blessed. And I can be happy and make bad situations and help turn them into good. Because we learn from things that don't always go our way. We can learn from that and know that it's okay. You can overcome it. You can be victorious at whatever you choose to do and do the best at what you do. So there are a very few number of RAs working in women's imaging. Is there any point in time in your experience that you've come across an RA or when did you first hear about the RA? Did you know this was a thing until you sat down with us tonight? No, I knew there's RA. We did not use them at our facility that I know of. I do believe going through radiology, as long as I have, I've seen many RAs and they are a great help to the facility and can really help the radiologists also. I even thought about becoming an RA at the beginning when I was at the beginning because I had seen some in our hospital in Augusta, Georgia. 
but I just never got there because children, you know, life happens. We just don't have them in our area at our facility. I do believe they can help. And I even heard one time, I know it's probably a rumor, that they were going to go away with our aid. We keep hearing the same rumors. It's unfortunate because I don't think what I do is a rumor. Marceline and I are living proof every day. I know that there are a lot of RAs that are actually practicing in Houston. Houston has a lot of them. Some of the surrounding facilities around that area, some of them work in pediatrics and some of them work in outpatient centers, you know, various areas. It is true. You're definitely hearing for whatever reason across several states, you're hearing that same rumor. And especially because you heard it a long time ago, back in 2010, when a lot of the billing questions came about, it's re-picked back up. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we are small in numbers and we always will continue to be smaller in numbers. We'll never reach the technologist level. We'll never reach the PA number or the NP number because the fact is we work within radiology and radiology is such a small community. But I think just getting people to understand that we are very much here, we do still work, we do still provide services to our patients. And understanding that, yes, it is a profession that is thriving and being talked about more. And maybe that's why you're hearing some more of what's being said, because it's being brought up again. You know, so a lot of people didn't hear about us for several years. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. It's very interesting to me. How much more school do you need to become an RA? So I can kind of give you a rundown through the RA programs now. And I know it's changed even since I went through the program. But now you have to have your associates. You go through your RT school. Then you have to get your bachelor's. Once you get your bachelor's, you can then apply to Midwestern State University, Loma Linda, Rutgers, Chapel Hill. I know I'm missing a couple of them, but we have six of them that are available or at least five of them that are currently taking students that you can go to. Through that, you do get your master's level and you graduate with your master's and then you're eligible to sit for your boards. They do require that you have so many clinicals within procedures. You have to have so many clinical hours and you have to obtain specific procedures before you can actually even sit for your boards. All of that gets submitted to the ARRT. At one point, you only had two times that you could take their boards. And recently, Vicki Dillard told me that they're going to open it up so that you have more availability to be able to take those boards. When that's going to happen, I'm not sure. So it is a master's level. And I think a lot of people are going now more towards looking at getting their bachelor's. So I think you're going to find a lot of different avenues in radiology that you can go to. And then also what comes out of it is we get that name of being recognized as professionals. So I think there's a lot of winning that's happening in radiology. You know, and just like we said in our last episode, it's about getting the right information out. Correct. They didn't push higher education back in the 90s. I didn't even get my associates when I graduated. So, yes, and you need to further your career. And education is one way to further your career and your knowledge. Many people are more aware of that now. Even unsharing that knowledge is to gain an education. And like you said, there are many colleges out there that give you credits for those college credits and going towards your bachelor's and then you can keep going. With master programs also that are guided with the radiology and sciences, we are a strong profession. It will be around. It had started (laughs) many moons ago, and it's going to continue. 
So I think that's wonderful to always improve ourselves. Education is not that easy. It takes dedication. When everybody else is out having family weekends or going here and there traveling, you're at home doing homework. So that dedication will pay off. It is hard. It is challenging. I mean, I'm 60. My brain doesn't work like it used to. I cannot retain (laughs) knowledge that easy. It was very hard. But at the end, when you graduate, it's all worth it because it goes towards helping our patients with the knowledge that we gain. Also helping my students because they taught me how to teach my students to improve their knowledge. So it trickles down to everyone. When you increase your education, like I said, if it was easy, it wouldn't mean anything. Even with y'all, with your RA, that wasn't easy to get, but you're trickling it down to help other technologists and your students and your patients with your knowledge and skills that you have gained from your education. You're definitely right there. The hours for education, it was brutal. (laughs) You know, you make it through it. So I know that you live here in Texas with us. (laughs) Obviously, legislation at this current time is not really hot for us. We don't have a whole lot going on. I don't know if you kind of keep up with just the mammography side or if you kind of look at radiology as a whole. What is your thought process as we're looking to find our voices and to continue heightening who we are? And just like what you said, doing that trickle effect, raising each other up to support one another the state of Texas. We do have some stricter regulations in mammography with the state of Texas, which is good. We have Henda's law, which is a density breast law that states we have to tell patients in our reports if they have dense breast tissue or not. We also have other regulations with the QUIP, which is enhancing quality using inspection program. In Texas, we have to have all three questions signed for the inspector. Other states do not. You know, each state does have legislator to help guide the safetiness and awareness for our patients. It's all about safety and health for our patients and keeping radiology safe. I know there's partial radiology licenses. Yes, in Texas, we have to have a state license to perform radiology, which is good. Yes, it costs extra, but it keeps up with our continuing education and making sure that we're keeping our skills and our knowledge updated to where, yes, the equipment changes. We have to keep up with the updates of that and regulations change and policies change. Texas can be a little strict compared to some other states, but I do like that for the safetyness of our patients and employees too. I love our laws. I've (laughs) bragged about them a couple of times. I think that they served our underserved rural communities very well. Because I understand that there is a void that everybody's trying to rush to fix. And if you look at the history, it is amazing how important that radiation safety came into play. And I keep reflecting back to the lecture that I'm going to give. And I'm like, it's just crazy if people understood, you know, what it took for us to get here, to get to this safe level, to now assume, well, it's safe. That's it. No, it's safe because of all the people who risk their lives who got radiation burns, who died of cancers in their 30s so that we could have these medical advancements and these radiation safety measurements. But reducing the education behind it is not the answer. That's not the solution. You found a way to be more efficient at it, but maintaining the education that's behind it is equally as important to all of the safety measures that we have in play currently. Okay, Race, you got any other questions? 
I, I kind of felt like a listener to this podcast episode because <laughs> I literally have no input. I have no experience and I have not had any patient interaction uh, as far as mammography is concerned. So I was just very content listening. Yeah, I think it's very important to understand the the process and the reasons why. I was actually very surprised to hear about all the different avenues you can do within the mammography. Well, uh, we taught you how to do a <laughs> self-exam. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm going to go do that later. It's uh, uh-huh. very, very important. I know I'm very, very grateful to know that there are people like you in the position that you've been doing over the last 27 years who love what you do so much so that you have not only one job, but three. I'm very, very happy to meet you and talk to you about with this. But I will say that, Deborah, you are my new breast friend today. Oh, thank you. I like that (laughs) breast friend. That was cute, Reese. Very cute. Thank you. I'm a cute guy. So, yeah. So, I'm going to put a squeeze on you. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I'm excited because that there are so many different avenues of mammography and so many different ways that you can go through it and then advance. So, I was really excited to hear about it because I don't do it. We don't really get a lot of our mammographers that come forward wanting to be a part of the podcast, you know. So, just being able to bring that aspect to it. So thank you for coming on and bringing us the mammography portion of it. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed every second. To our listeners, I did want to say thank you for heading over to our website at www.collaborationra.com. I strongly encourage you to continue checking that out, add more topics of conversation. Let us know how we're doing or if there's a direction you would like for us to take this podcast, let us know. That'd be a great way to reach out to us. Deborah, thank you for joining us. Thank you again. I loved it. All right, guys. We will see y'all next week. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Collaboration RA. Remember to find us on our website at www.collaborationra.com. There you'll find our social media accounts. Give us a like and give us a share. We look forward to your support and thank you for tuning in.